This is local and regional news on KDNK. I'm Haddison Rensbury. In a new addition to a concerning series of structure fires throughout the past month, early this morning, Roaring Fork Fire Rescue Authority was called to a home on Baby Doe Lane. The residents sustained significant water and fire damage. No injuries of personnel or residents were reported, and the incident is currently under investigation. The Carbondale Clay Center is hosting the first in a series of masterclass workshops on February 24th and 25th, taught by Chris Cox. Cox is well regarded in the ceramics community and helped to create what is now the ceramics studio at Anderson Ranch. This series of workshops is not for beginners. Rather, the instruction will be ideal for intermediate or advanced students. Techniques such as wheel throwing and hand building are the primary focus of the classes. More information is available at the Clay Center's website. Healthcare providers in Colorado have been drawn into America's homelessness crisis and are adding institutional weight into a push for solutions, according to a new report by independent health journalist Michelle Cohen Marill. For KDNK, Eric Galatis has more. Merrill points to one aha moment experienced by physician Sarah Stella, who saw many people experiencing homelessness seeking emergency care at Denver Health. She had patients coming in with severe frostbite and other types of injuries. They would get patched up, they would be discharged and ended up back on the streets. And then within a brief period of time, she would see them back in the ER. One patient living outdoors had severe frostbite, which required several toes to be amputated. He was discharged to a shelter, but because it was relatively warm, he chose to sleep outside. He awoke covered in snow and went back to the ER with frostbite on his remaining toes. Stella then went to work connecting area health providers to nonprofits and foundations to find ways to break this cycle. I'm Eric Galatis. The Roaring Fork School District says there's increasing evidence of drug use among its students. So last month, they hosted a series of community forums proposing several strategies to try and address the uptick. But some experts are skeptical about the different ideas. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Aspen Public Radio's Hallie Zander reports. When school district staff gathered at Basalt High School last month, they taught families how to recognize the warning signs for drug addiction and deal with fentanyl contamination. Interim Principal Megan Hartman says that's because kids are using pretty serious substances, according to local law enforcement. Because there's been increased evidence, right, of especially teenagers using fentanyl, cocaine, meth, heroin in schools. And it's not just in our valley. It's it's in our state and it's across the nation. While it's hard to collect data on illicit drug use, youth overdose deaths are spiking across the country. So the district has offered up a few potential strategies to address these problems, such as implementing a robust drug and alcohol education program. But some ideas, like increasing the number of school resource officers, closing campuses so kids can't leave during their free periods, or bringing drug-sniffing dogs to campus, have drawn skepticism. I haven't seen anyone who's supportive of these punitive methods. That's Maggie Seldine, founder of High Rockies Harm Reduction. She was at the meeting in Basalt last month. We met up afterward at a busy coffee shop in Carbondale. And if anything, people seem really upset, and that's all I've heard 
from person after person, community member after community member, parent after parent. Saldine works in western Colorado to limit the negative effects of drug use. She grew up in the Roaring Fork Valley and knows what can happen when communities shame people struggling with addiction or when resources are unavailable. Her parents were addicts, and her mom struggled with mental health issues until she died in 2006 from a heroin overdose. Saldine was just 15. I had kind of a rocky road. I really struggled here and didn't have anyone who believed my voice as a teenager. She received D.A.R.E. programming in school, a set of drug abstinence lessons that became popular in the U.S. in the 80s and 90s. Saldine remembers they were sometimes led by police officers and used a lot of ineffective scare tactics. And as a kid, she was taught that the police could get her family in trouble if she was honest with them. So she's wary that bringing in more officers or drug-sniffing dogs could alienate the students who need help the most. And so not every student is going to be freaked out by a canine unit. But the students that are, are the students who we're going to, like, lose trust with, we're going to lose connection with, we're potentially going to lose seeing them in school as much. Seldine suggests more evidence-based practices. Blueprints for Healthy Youth Development is an online registry of scientifically backed interventions that promote healthy habits. Dr. Carl Hill is a co-creator of this resource, and he says since many problem behaviors like drug use and violence have a common set of root causes. If you can address those root causes, then you have a broad effect across many different outcomes. He's been studying prevention and youth development since the 1990s, and he assessed the Roaring Fork School District's different ideas. When it came to increasing the number of school resource officers, Dr. Hill says that studies have shown... The presence of a school resource officer had actually zero impact on school violence, and I don't expect that it would have any impact on drugs either. He says that's because school violence and drug use tend to rise and fall in tandem, and he thinks closing campuses doesn't show much promise either. The majority of adolescent crime happens between 3 and 5 in the afternoon after kids get out of school and before their parents come home from work. And he said that introducing drug-sniffing dogs into schools was another reactive solution, that evidence-based programs teach kids to manage their impulses, emotions, and make good decisions. He adds that drug education programs are promising, as long as they're targeted at families and teachers, begin at the transition from elementary to middle school, and are part of a bigger strategy to boost social-emotional learning. Saldine says kids are really hungry for this kind of knowledge. If kids want to know about drugs and if they have the science and information and the opportunities to practice saying no and having these conversations, they're a lot less likely to experiment or use. Roaring Fork School District staff say whatever they do next, community input will be an important component in developing a drug prevention plan. The interim superintendent is scheduled to discuss next steps at Wednesday's school board meeting. For Aspen Public Radio News, I'm Hallie Zander. That story was produced with the help from the Public Media Journalists Association Editor Corps. It's supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. It was shared with us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including KDNK. The embattled UNT Basin Railway, the proposed short line that would connect Utah's oil fields to the national rail system, has lost key federal permits over the past seven months. But proponents are not giving up. 
KDNK's Amy Haddon Marsh has this update. Our request before you today is 750000 one-time funding to bridge the gap between the conclusion of our Community Impact Board funding and the sale of our intellectual rights to the railroad to our private partner. That's Keith Heaton, Executive Director of the Seven County Infrastructure Coalition, or SCIC, the public entity behind the proposed Uinta Basin Railway. As its name implies, the SCIC comprises seven eastern Utah counties. Heaton spoke to the Utah State Legislature's Infrastructure and General Government Appropriations Subcommittee on January 31st, requesting taxpayer money from the state's general fund to keep the railroad project rolling. To get this project built, uh, it's been funded by the Community Impact Board, or CIB, and it's also a public-private partnership with seven counties serving as the public side of the equation. Our role as the public side has been to obtain permits and do the planning for the project, which we successfully accomplished. Well, almost. The railway lost its federal permit in August through a lawsuit, which was filed by Eagle County, Colorado, and the Center for Biological Diversity last year to appeal the Federal Surface Transportation Board's 2021 approval of the project. They prevailed in what I would call a liberal Washington court, which has created, obviously, problems for the project, as well as problems for our country, in that they uh, ruled that we would need to look at undetermined downstream and upstream impacts to the environment. So we would have to do environmental assessments in Louisiana, Texas, pretty much anywhere there's a refinery that could take products that might be shipped out of the Uinta Basin. The same court in December rejected the SCIC's request to rehear the August decision. Then, in January of this year, the U.S. Forest Service dealt another blow to the UBR by withdrawing its permit for the construction of the railroad through a roadless area in Utah's Ashley National Forest. So, the railway is stalled, but Heaton said the SCIC has more options. We're seeking congressional solution through our national delegation, uh, which we feel very strongly about. We're also soliciting Supreme Court certiari uh, because this treads all over the state's rights, interstate commerce. In a January interview, Ted Zukoski, attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity, told KDNK that it would be a long shot if the SCIC took the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. The issues in this case are pretty much garden variety, you know, you need to take a hard look at the impacts. Uh And they didn't do that. These are not the kinds of juicy uh, issues where you have a split in the circuit courts of appeal or, you know, some huge political issue. Seems very unlikely to me that the Supreme Court would take this case. Regardless of which direction it chooses, the SCIC still needs the $750,000 to proceed. The Utah Infrastructure and General Government Appropriations Subcommittee should have a decision on the SCIC's request by early March. For KDNK News, I'm Amy Haddon Marsh. This is KDNK News.